0: Hey, True Crimeys. I'm Kayla. And
1: I'm Kayla's mom, Alicia.
0: And you are listening to True Crime Exposed. Welcome back to our show. Again, I'm so thankful if you click on us, if you choose to listen to us, the best things you can do is leave us a review or share us onto your social media. Now, if you love true crime, I'm so glad you made it to our show where we're a mother-daughter duo that discusses brand new cases every single week, where we give victim stories exposure and we support the life of anyone who was taken from us unjustly. We are here to be a voice for those that no longer have one and to get their stories out there. Are you ready for today's case? Okay, guys, we are here for part three covering this huge case, the Doomsday Daybells. Are we going to really wrap it up in episode three? No. <laughs> I, oh
1: I feel so bad.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: I, I can't you that. I know because <laughs> I...
0: <laughs> I've said a bunch of times, okay, we're going to wrap it up, but it's like, do you guys want me to leave things out? I can't. And there is just so much. Like, there is so much information. And I got to writing, and it was like, I just, there was no way I was finishing it. So
1: <laughs> hopefully, there's not a part five.
0: Oh, there can't be. For sure. I mean, at this time, part four is the final. And I literally, I did pull the all-nighter getting this episode ready. I've been up since yesterday morning.
1: There's just so much info.
0: I know. I was writing from like 11 p.m. to 5 a.m.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: So we ended last episode, part two, with talking about how Chad and Lori met. Literally the cringiest thing I've ever heard of. So let's learn a bit more about this Chad Daybell. Where did he come from?
1: Let's do, because I am interested because there's different thoughts on Lori made Chad crazy, Chad made Lori crazy, so I'm I'm interested in this.
0: I know, and it is very interesting. So starting out, let's get this out of the way. We talked about it in part one of this case, but me and this evil dude share a birthday August 11th. It's unfortunate. He's a Leo just like me, but he does not deserve that crown. You don't even believe in anything about star signs, do you?
1: I mean, I'm not into it or anything.
0: So (laughs) he is the exact same as me, but not really. So Chad was born on August 11th, 1968 in Provo, Utah, which is about 45 minutes south of where you live.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: And it is where the LDS College BYU is. So Chad is 53 years old this year, and Chad's parents are Sheila Daybell and Jack Daybell. And his middle name is Guy. And this is named after his grandpa on his mom's side, Guy Chestnut. Now, when Chad was a young teen, he spent a lot of time with this grandpa. And one day, Grandpa Guy told Chad a story, a story about how he once met a messenger from heaven And as we will see, this story is one that seems to have been stuck in Chad's mind ever since. Quote, I was a teenager when grandpa first told me this experience, and it really had an impact on me. Up to that point, I figured only the prophet or apostles could receive visits from messengers, but I realized it could happen to common members of the church under the right circumstances. End quote. And according to InsideEdition.com, Chad wrote this on his website in 2015, just a few years before meeting Lori at that conference in St. George. Chad has at least two brothers that I've read about, Paul Daybell and Matt Daybell, and I believe Chad Daybell was the oldest brother. It was honestly really hard to find any information on Chad's family, They've seemed to stay pretty quiet. They've issued a couple statements, and that's about it. I do know that Chad's family is also described as being devout Mormon, so he did grow up in the LDS church just like Lori had. And when Chad was 17 years old, he decided to go cliff jumping with some friends. And we love, love, love cliff jumping when we go to Lake Powell, which is down in Arizona, but Of course, if you do this activity, you have to make sure you're safe, that you wear life jackets, you check the area you're jumping into before you jump. And Chad was, I guess, not an experienced cliff jumper, so he was not safe when he went. And after jumping into the water, he actually got hurt somehow, and he describes himself as having a near-death experience. While he is near death, as he claims, he says that he crosses over the veil and finds himself in another dimension. This is the first day that his beliefs were truly confirmed because he saw a world beyond this one.
1: So I do believe that people can have near-death experiences. Yeah.
0: And like maybe see something like when they're near death. Yeah. It seems to happen to chat a lot. Uh,
1: that's <laughs> what's weird, I think. I mean, I don't think it's going to happen often.
0: Right. But no, I totally have heard of things like that where like, You know, someone's like dying on the table and then they end up getting saved and they feel like they were able to talk to someone from their family and stuff like that. I've heard of that. Like
1: go toward the light or they see the light or something.
0: Yeah, totally. I have heard of that. Now, once Chad graduates high school, he does decide to serve an LDS mission. And when someone decides to do this, they turn in papers that they fill out and then they wait. And I I don't know, is it a few weeks or a few months?
1: A few months. Before Uh, they... Seems
0: like a month now.
1: It could have been different when he was doing it.
0: So they wait a few months and eventually they get this letter in the mail saying where they will be serving. And there are areas all around the world as well as here in the United States. And I don't know if they did this back then, but wouldn't you say there's usually like a little like gathering and the missionary opens the letter. They read where they're going. They kind of surprise everyone and themselves. And then they give a little talk at church right before they go called a mission farewell and then they head out. And men go for 24 months, so 2 years. And obviously you can come home at any point if you want to, but they basically just live out there with other men serving in the same area and they cycle through different mission companions, which is just like a little buddy who they do all their stuff with, and then they come home when it's all over. So one of Chad's mission companions has actually spoken out. Unfortunately, I can't find where Chad went on his mission, but this companion is named Trent Price, and he remembered Chad as an excellent missionary. He said he was super knowledgeable about the church and seemed to really have a passion for teaching his beliefs. Quote, he was one of the best of us. We were a pretty solid group, but he was amazing. We called him the gentle giant. He was tall and very soft-spoken, but he seemed to have this real deep spirituality and people would gravitate to him. End quote. And when Trent heard about his old friend who he shared deep bonds with, he was shocked. It made him sick to his stomach, and he tried to deny what was happening with Chad, but the evidence was not looking so good. And we will eventually see that the evidence becomes too overwhelming to deny. Trent not only served this mission alongside Chad all those years ago, but the men stayed in touch over the last 30 years. Until one day, the evil side of Chad was exposed. After Chad's mission, he attended BYU, Brigham Young University, right there in his hometown. He ends up getting a bachelor's degree here in communications. And then at some point during his time between graduating high school and graduating college, Chad has another near-death experience. So he's on this vacation in California and he decides to go to the beach, a beach with large waves. We all know these are the most fun beaches where you can ride the water in the waves and get pushed back up onto the sand, sometimes maybe slammed back onto the sand. But Chad is out there swimming and he's not paying a lot of attention when out of nowhere, This giant wave crashes down on top of him, and the next thing he knows, he is spinning around underwater, unsure of which way will lead him up to the surface. While he is in this state of confusion and submerged in the murky water, he says his spirit literally comes out of his body and starts visiting with his grandpa's spirit. His grandpa is like, hey, what's up? Let me show you some future events. And then his grandpa shows him things he was going to do in the future with his children. And at this point, his children are non-existent. And then he finally comes to the surface and he's scared because he know he just about drowned to death. But at the same time, he feels amazing. And he starts asking himself, like, what's going on? He feels really weird. Well, you know, That's just the filling of the veil between mortal life and the spirit world being partially opened, he says. From this day forward, Chad claims that the veil that separates our mortal life from heaven would remain open for him forever. He explains himself as having one foot in each world.
1: I wonder if his cliff jumping uh, brain damaged him.
0: Yeah, yeah. I wonder, because it does seem to, like, go from there. I mean, his grandpa told him that story when he was little about, like, you know, someone visiting him. But I think when he was 17 and had that experience cliff jumping, he says that's when it was really confirmed.
1: Yeah, but then he went on his mission and seemed to do really well. I know. I don't know.
0: It's weird. Interesting. Yeah. So... Chad actually did write about both of these experiences later on in his life in his book titled Living on the Edge of Heaven. This would later propel him in being picked up for interviews on podcasts and speaking at conferences about his spirit world experiences. Through this experience, Chad claims he has seen many things in the spirit world that basically tell him the future and what's going to happen here on Earth. Things like an apocalyptic United States, which he says will happen right before Jesus comes back to Earth for what many Christians refer to as the second coming.
1: Didn't he have like a specific date for that?
0: Yes, and I think it was, like, actually last year in July.
1: <laughs> yeah, it came and went.
0: Which it was the pandemic, like, when they first went to jail. And I'm like, geez, they probably think they're right. <laughs> like, we're in this huge pandemic. Everyone's freaking out. They're like, told you. Oh. But then the world did not end on the day that he said it was going right? to. It never does. No. <laughs> Whenever someone comes out and says the world's going to end on a certain date. It never happens. Was What was that one movie, 2012? Wasn't everyone freaked out? I remember being in like high school or something and everyone was freaked out that in 2012, we were all going to die. And then we got to like 2013 and we're like, all right.
1: Oh, really? I remember it being when it, it turned the year 2000.
0: I've heard of that too. I actually heard of that in another podcast. And they said at, during that, people were freaking out.
1: Oh, yeah. It was kind of, Crazy.
0: That's funny. I obviously don't remember that because I was five. (laughs) Yeah. Now, Chad writes about these scary foreseen times in his book titled Times of Turmoil. First, he says that Salt Lake City, Utah will have a detrimental earthquake. So watch out, mom. you basically live in Salt Lake.
1: He said sometimes uh, at some point there's going to be an earthquake.
0: At some point, there's going to be a huge earthquake specifically in Salt Lake City. Okay. And I think of Salt Lake City, like even though there's hundreds of little cities from Ogden to Provo, I generalize that entire area as one big Salt Lake City. (laughs) (laughs) So Chad says that after this earthquake... Quote, a convoy of United Nations peacekeepers is making its way to Utah to assist in the full invasion of the United States by the coalition for forces, which will spark World War Three. End quote.
1: So all this stuff is in his book?
0: Yes. In times of turmoil.
1: And what year was that published?
0: I do not know. Actually, okay.
1: it'd be interesting to see like uh, How what the year of it like how far I think he
0: published most of his books like between like 2004 and 2018 like that's a broad spectrum but he opened the publishing company in 2004 so okay but as we can see Chad basically went off his rocker when he was super young he sounds like he started going pretty crazy when he was 17 kind of like we said when he had that first unearthly experience and I can't decide if he truly believes he had these experiences or if he's or if he just gets off telling these outlandish stories for the attention because I feel like he knows his teachings are a bunch of baloney but if he truly believed these experiences and visions then he was literally suffering severe mental illness And that's also tragic because he clearly didn't get diagnosed and he didn't receive any help for that. Yeah. Like it's one or the other.
1: I think, I don't know. I think people that say that really, like say similar things like that, really believe it.
0: Yeah. But then it's like, think,
1: but it's a mental illness, right?
0: Yeah. But then I think about a lot of the like cult leaders around the world and it's like they knew that they were like, big fakes. I don't know. If he was mentally Ill, Ill, it's, like, literally kind of sad. I mean, before it gets to a bad point. But it's, like, it's sad that, like, no one kind of intervened and, like, got you some help.
1: Yeah, I know. It looks like that book was in 2012.
0: Okay, Times of Turmoil was published in 2012. hmm Okay. So, during Chad's time attending BYU... He ends up meeting this amazing woman, and her name is Tammy Douglas. Tamara Michelle Douglas was born on May 4th, 1970, which that's Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. And I know that because... Did you say May 4th? What? May 4th? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because it's May the 4th be with you. Oh my gosh, (laughs) you would know. It really is Star Wars. Well, me and Jacob actually got engaged on that day. (laughs) so i i do know because we got engaged on star wars day not on purpose he
1: should have dressed up
0: (laughs) he should have anyways she's born on that may 4th 1970 so she is just about two years younger than chad and ronald and phyllis douglas are tammy's parents and she was born in pasadena california and she grew up both here and anaheim california until her early teens She has four siblings, Michael Douglas, Samantha Douglas, now Jo William, Matthew Douglas, and Benjamin Douglas. Tammy's family was Mormon, just like Chad's, and they seem to have given her a pretty great life. She attended Saratos Elementary School, which was a charter school for the mentally gifted, and this really fueled her creative mind, and it's a trait that would stay with her for her entire life. Tammy loved putting on these little family shows as a child and she would say that she's producing and directing the shows and she'd kind of gather and force all her little family members into being a part of these productions. And she also lived near her cousins so they would do a lot of little trips together. They'd go to Disneyland all the time. They'd go to Elfin Forest and Calico Ghost Town. And then at 13 years old, Tammy's family makes the move from California to Springville, Utah, which is only about 10 minutes away from Provo, Utah, where Chad grew up. And Tammy played the drums and the clarinet at Springville High School as a part of their band. And then during her senior year, she took on the role of being the yearbook editor. And Tammy's family describes her as being friendly and kind, which are truly characteristics that are hard to come by, especially in high school. So that's amazing for her. She sounds great. And one of Tammy's passions was reading and having a lot of books, and this would fuel her career later in life. Tammy even created a library in her room growing up. So she would take books and she would lend them to her siblings. She would give them library cards that she made. And if they didn't return the books back to her by the due date, she would actually find them. <laughs> and that's like hilarious and cute. That sounds like
1: something Cassie, your little sister, would
0: do. I I was just going to say that sounds like Cassie. Because when she was like three years old, you'd be like, hey, will you give me a foot rub? And she'd be like, for $5. <laughs> And she was always working the system to get money. She's never done a thing for me without getting money. (laughs) That's the baby. (laughs) Oh, so funny. Now, after Tammy graduated high school, she also attended Brigham Young University and she loved it. During her freshman year, she felt on top of the world. She was grown up. She's achieving her goals and living out her dreams attending a college that she loved. And she still wasn't too far from home while she was at school, so she could still maintain that family bond with her parents and her siblings. And then during the summer between freshman and sophomore year, Tammy meets a boy, Chad Daybell. Here is where the two come together. Their romance was fast. They quickly fall in love, and soon they decide to get married on March 9, 1990 at the Manti Utah Temple. Once they're married, Tammy decides to take a break from the college life and help support her husband while he finishes going to school. And that little fact just sort of ticked me off because like here Tammy is freaking sacrificing herself for her husband so he can continue on with his goals and she just supports him and loves him. And in the end, we know he just does her so much wrong. Yeah, so... So that just, like, made me annoyed. So
1: she actually stopped college?
0: She stopped college. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: That is sad.
0: I know. So while Chad finishes school, Tammy decides to work as a secretary for the Springville's Parks Department. She was in charge of the burial records here, so she would type out the records and she would put them into a computer database... And with this, she actually gained a love for something new, a new hobby, a new passion. And this would be exploring family history. As she continued her life, she continued this hobby and it was something she really prided herself on doing. And Chad did do some side work while he finished school. He was actually a grave digger. He said that digging graves really helped him through school The extra money was good for his little family. Chad and Tammy would go on to have five children, Mark, Garth, Seth, Leah, and Emma. During this crazy time of growing their family, Chad graduates from BYU with that degree in communications and he lands a job in Ogden, Utah, which would be about an hour north of where they're living down in Provo, Utah. Once they move, Tammy decides it's time to stop working since she just supported Chad through school. Now he's working and he could take care of the family while Tammy stays at home and takes care of her kids. She was an amazing mom who loved taking them to the library. She would let them quietly run around and choose books that they wanted to check out and bring home. And this forever instilled in them a love for reading.
1: Yeah, I remember seeing interviews done by a few of their children, and I mean, it sounds like they had a really great childhood. Yeah. Like, she was a great mom, he was a great dad.
0: I know, which is probably why it's so hard for them right now to accept what's happening.
1: I know, I I think from that interview, I think they think it's Lori's fault.
0: Yes, they think he's being framed, but... We won't even make it to that point yet, but (laughs) yes. like,
1: that's why I thought it was interesting to see what everyone's thinking is going to be. It
0: would be hard to see your dad like this, especially if he was a good dad. But then again, it's like, I mean, he has these crazy tendencies since he was young. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think you know my theory. I basically told you last time. Like, I basically think Chad had the hots for Lori. I think he was manipulative. I think he did it on purpose purpose but then it's like i don't blame him more than Lori because they were Lori's kids so i don't know how to explain it with, with like and make it sound like i don't blame him but i do think he knew what he was doing while Lori, i think she was literally off her rocker and truly like possibly believed the crap he was spewing Wait. i didn't used to think that but like i do like So, but it is a lot of people do think it's like her and not him. And well, to do what I don't know, to do
1: what they did, they're giving you
0: all the info and then you can make your choice. Yes, well, they're both evil, yes, and crazy. So, that's for I'm trying
1: not to say the word crazy because didn't someone text you and say (laughs) that they used the word crazy
0: as a drinking game and they got drunk? (laughs) Rodrigo, (laughs) hey, (laughs) but guys, don't do that, it's not safe. (laughs) But yes, it's like they definitely both have problems. And I, I'm i always more mad, honestly, at mothers who kill. And I don't know if it's just because I'm a mother and like I cannot even imagine like my child dying, let alone me being responsible for taking their lives. So moms that kill really piss me off. So I like hate Lori more, but I also think she believed in it more. I don't know. It's weird. So, Chad and Tammy's little stint in Ogden wouldn't actually last very long before they decide to move back to Springville, Utah, where Tammy attended high school and where her family still lived. Tammy's kids were getting older and she felt like she had more time as they were all starting school. So, she decided to take on another role as the computer teacher at Art City Elementary School. She was as good of a teacher as she was a mother. She was kind and soft with the kids, and she was talented with computers and graphic art. So this gig was perfect for her. Now, during this time, Chad takes a job as the Cemetery Sexton in Springville, Utah basically meaning that he's the caretaker of the cemetery. He looks over the grounds and not only did he continue to dig graves during this time, but he was also in charge of maintaining the area and keeping it tidy. During this time, some news stations had interviewed him about his job and he told Deseret News, quote, taking care of the graves is rewarding as well as helping widows and grieving family members deal with the trauma he goes on to say quote sad times are always when you have to bury babies that's always a poignant moment end quote and like yes absolutely I could not handle helping bury babies and kids it would totally rip my heart out I'd probably cry every day but like really Chad okay so you... Are saying to the news, you're so sad about burying babies, but then later on in a couple of decades, you're, like, going to be cool with burying a 17-year-old and a 7-year-old? It's just weird. Like, did you mean that back then? Or did you just say that? Because you know that's what you should say.
1: Yeah. Who knows?
0: But he is not done here. Chad literally, I can't even barely get through this part, he literally tells this journalist that is interviewing him, his name's Joffrey Fatah, that he had a four-year-old visitor once. And I can't tell if he means visitor like an actual human being visiting a grave with family or if he means like a visitor as in a spirit that came to him because as we know, he apparently lives half of his life in the spirit world. But he goes out of his way, out of his way to tell this journalist that this four-year-old visitor referred to him as, quote, the sexy one, end quote.
1: Okay.
0: Excuse me, sir. Like, first of all, if a four-year-old is calling you sexy, whether it's a human or a spirit. That's nothing to brag about. (laughs) And the fact that he's going out of his way, he's going out of his way there. Like it is out of left field in the article. Like they're talking about the the cemetery. And then all of a sudden it's just like, and he had a four-year-old visitor that referred to him as the sexy one. And I'm like, ew, ew, ew. Like what is happening here? I hate this. I'm so uncomfortable. (laughs) Like... (laughs) what is literally happening i guess no one else was calling chad sexy but like hey a four-year-old girl told you that you were so it must be true you little sexy cemetery sexton oh my gosh like it like i was like dying when i read that i was like what is happening i can't breathe
1: well, if a four-year-old said it, they've probably heard their mom say it to their dad or something. It's not like they know an older man is sexy
0: exactly. but like why did Chad include that in his interview and this this was in like 2001 or something, or I don't even remember it was a long time ago, but
1: because he wanted people to think he was sexy.
0: Yeah, this four year old girl, yeah, she told me I was sex. I was the sexy one at the cemetery. Like, congratulations, Chad, you made it. (laughs) That cracked me up. Now, Chad would later on in 2001 write a book about his time working here. It's called One Foot in the Grave Secrets of a Cemetery Sexton. Quote, In this entertaining book, readers will meet such characters as a lock-picking ghost, a coffin-chasing cow, a rock band with boorish graveside manners, and Mrs. Robinson, whose leg preceded her to the grave. Each chapter gives a behind-the-scenes look at different aspects of the of a sexton's world, including cemetery blunders, meddling spirits, bizarre events, and efforts to outfox the Grim Reaper. Written in a humorous tongue in cheeky style, this collection of the author's actual graveyard adventure is a curiously uplifting book you won't be able to put down or ever forget." Now, apparently after Chad published this book, he started to think that his job was strange, and because his experiences were so unusual and weird, he decides to resign and move on. He described the cemetery as a wonderful place to get ideas for his books, though. So, Although he took a seven-year break, he actually eventually comes back to working for Springfield Cemetery before eventually working for Spanish Fork City as their cemetery sexton in 2009. Four years later, he transferred back to Springville Cemetery and worked here for one more year before resigning in 2014. Chad told the Daily Herald, quote, there are always the questions about how someone gets into this line of work, but I enjoy it a lot and it has given me some pretty unique stories about cemeteries, end quote. And Tammy had worked at that elementary school as a computer teacher up until 2004. And this is when her and Chad decided to try out one of their dreams. So as we could see, Chad was still working as a cemetery sexton during this time, and then he's also doing this company. So This year, they start up a publishing company called Spring Creek Book Company, and the company seems like it ended up somewhat successful. Tammy was a huge part of the company and was the one keeping it all together as the chief financial officer, as well as designing the book covers. Now, sadly, Tammy didn't know the evil that was hidden inside these books, inside the mind of Chad Daybell. And these books that he wrote and talked about would be a very early on catalyst for all that would come. Not only would Chad write books for his company, but he also picked up many authors and published their books as well, which I kind of feel sad for them because I'm sure like at the time they're like, yes, I'm living the dream. A publishing company picked me up. And then it all just comes crashing down because your boss or whatever he is to them is this evil psycho who ends up murdering people, and now his company and like books that come from there, I'm sure will always kind of get like the side eye. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think like pretty much all the books published through Spring Creek Book Company were religious novels. Some were real, some were fiction, and they were sold at LDS bookstores such as Deseret Industries. Is that what it's called, or is it Deseret Books?
1: Um, Deseret Books.
0: Deseret Bugs, and then they were also sold in some of the national retail chains. Chad had a childhood friend named Scott Mitchell, and he describes him to Dateline as the nicest guy you could ever meet in your life, but that he was very average. Scott thinks that Chad used writing books to find a way to make himself something, and Keith Morrison, who I love and I'm obsessed with, because Dateline is like was my whole life growing up. He actually throws some shade at Chad, saying that Scott describes him as the guy who did not light up a room. <laughs> so they're basically confirming what I said last episode. Chad wanted to be something, to be idolized, but he was nothing special. Oh my god. And they are saying it, too. Keith Morrison's on my side. Hey, Keith. Yeah. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Or you're on his.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, like, when Lori looked up to him as a literal god and people flocked to him because of these outlandish stories, Chad ate that right up. Oh, yeah. Anyways. Chad's most famous book and a bestseller was titled Standing in Holy Places, and it was a series of books. And then that book we talked about, Times of Turmoil, where he writes about the end times he had visions of when he viewed the spirit world once in a while. That book was the sequel series to the Standing in Holy Places series.
1: I'm surprised that he wrote because his wife seems like she would be the Writer.
0: I know because she loved books, but Chad needed the attention. That's right. Maybe she helped him. I know she did help him. She probably. I know. Him. I know she helped him on the primary one. So Chad wrote two books. Like he, like I mean, he wrote a lot of books, but he wrote a couple other books, like titled "Chasing Paradise," and then he has one called the Emma Trilogy, which I'm assuming has something to do with his daughter since she's named Emma. But some of his. Fiction books for the younger generations were titled the Aaron- is it the ironic the ironic priesthood
1: yeah ironic
0: yeah so one of them's titled that and then the other one's called the youth of Zion mm-hmm. and then he would also write some books for even younger kids primary which is school age elementary school age. and Tammy helped with these books and they were called Tiny Talk series oh
1: I just hate that he wrote, wrote stuff like that.
0: I know. And that like little kids read his books. It's like, go away. I mean, if they were good,
1: they had to have been by Tammy, right? (laughs) Because he was like Charlie calls people a nutball.
0: Yeah, (laughs) he literally is a nutball. As the publishing company became more and more successful, Chad and Tammy started to have more freedom. They were not tied down to jobs in specific locations. They could run their company from anywhere. So they decided to move to Salem, Idaho, which is about nine minutes from Rexburg, Idaho. Like like Provo, Rexburg has a high population of LDS church members in the community. Rexburg is home to BYU's sister college, BYU-Idaho. It's a much smaller school and definitely cheaper than BYU, Like, they, I don't think they have a football team and all that stuff. Like, they're not like a big university. I don't know. But it shares, you know, they share the same concept. Now, although Tammy and Chad were successful and busy with their publishing company, Tammy wanted to go back to her passion, which was books. So she decided to take a job at Madison Middle School as a librarian. She would work here as well as Central Elementary School nearby in Sugar City, Idaho. While there, she also worked as their school librarian. Through all of this, it's probably pretty clear that Tammy and Chad were raising their children in the Mormon church. Their publishing company was fueled by religious books. They both attended BYU and had a love for the church. Tammy took on many roles in their church ward. At one point, she was the girls' camp director. Another point, she was the young woman's president. Both of these roles put her working with teen girls, and we know that's never easy. And then she would also serve in relief society, working with adult women, as well as different roles in primary at one point. Again, primary is the younger children. And it was tradition in their family each Sunday to spend the day together. After attending church, Tammy would cook the family a big Sunday dinner. They would spend the day playing games and relaxing with each other. So by the time 2018 hits, which Chad and Lori, this is when Chad and Lori meet at that conference in Utah, Tammy's children are grown up. Many are married and she has two grandkids. She was the sweetest grandma to Chase Murray, which is her daughter Emma's son, and Jordan Murphy, her daughter Leah's son. No one knew that 2018 would brew up such a horrifying, evil, and truly tragic year in 2019. Well, no one except Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow. So by the time Chad and Lori meet in St. George, Utah, Chad and Tammy have been married for 28 years. She has birthed and raised Chad's five children, but oof, he sees Lori and it's over from there. Lori is now Chad's new goddess. Remember, we went through this crazy novel he wrote Lori about their meeting and where, you know, he absolutely embarrassed himself big time. Well, after this, the two of them start a full-on affair. Lori and Chad were texting, emailing, and calling each other constantly. They had met in October of 2018, and it would only take months before their path of destruction starts.
1: I really wish we could ask Tammy if she thought that Chad was a little cuckoo. I know. I haven't heard any, like, interviews or stories from people that have said...
0: I know, and it didn't sound like she was going to the conferences with him. Huh? You know, like, she obviously wasn't... She wasn't... At these conferences with him?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, but you would. I wonder if she would tell her friends or like, oh hey, my husband has kind of has some weird beliefs. I know that would
0: be really interesting to hear that, but maybe she didn't. I don't know.
1: I know, or did they just become so bizarre about the time that she died?
0: Well, he was writing these books always, like he was saying these really outlandish things since he was young, so. Maybe she was just used to it. That's just who he was. Yeah. So one month after meeting, Chad and Lori decide to take things to the next level. In fact, to the next several levels. When they decide they can magically seal themselves as married in the temple. So here's the thing with Mormon temples. To be eligible to go inside, unless it's like a tour of a new or remodeled temple, you have to have a temple recommend. This is given to you by a bishop in your ward after you talk with him and basically discuss if you're following the church teachings like not having premarital sex or sex outside your marriage, that you're staying clean of alcohol and drugs and just stuff like that. So if you get married in the temple, it is called getting sealed and it is believed in the LDS church that you are then married for eternity. So instead of death do you part, they believe you will remain married in the afterlife and have an eternal family. To get sealed in the temple, you have to have your temple recommends, and then you schedule it with the temple. There's official paperwork, kind of like your marriage license, and it's documented, and someone who is able to perform these marriages in the temple will marry you, just kind of like how any priest or something would marry you at a church. Your family can be there watching if they have temple recommends as well. And everyone else waits outside for you guys to come out celebrating and they cheer for you and all of that. So it's like a legit process. You can't just go inside and do your own thing and be like, hey, we're married. But Chad and Lori, they thought they could because remember, Chad is like basically a God himself in the eyes of him and Lori. So, they get into the temple with their recommends that they're obviously lying to obtain, since I'm sure they're screwing at this point and clearly having an affair. And Lori probably already murdered her third husband, Joe Ryan, but you know, they go in and they go find a room together. It's really beautiful inside the temples. And after you go through, you can kind of just roam, and there's really pretty art. So, they just go in and they do. They find their own little room, and they do their own little ceiling ritual, basically a formality, because remember, they have been married multiple times in many previous lives, which I don't even think Mormons believe in having multiple previous earthly lives, right?
1: <laughs> Not multiple, but one, I guess.
0: Like what do you mean? Like they don't think like you're, we're reborn on earth, over and over. Oh, no, no. Anyways, they come out and they're like, yes, we are officially married. We're married for eternity and we're sealed in the eyes of God. I mean, oh, well, that we both have literal spouses that we are actually married to in real life. Lori is still married to Charles and Chad is legitimately sealed to Tammy. And one Reddit user actually explain this best and the username was vii underscore sherbet quote whatever chad did would make him and Lori sealed as much as my five-year-old drawing a driver's license would make her a legal driver end quote (laughs) true (laughs) it's like yes like it meant absolutely nothing people were really confused on reddit like did they really get like sealed is this how it works and it's like no They didn't. They're weird. No, first
1: of all, you have to be legally married.
0: One person I saw was like, my sister said that they were like, they were truly sealed and that the church is covering it up. And it's like, no. No,
1: like literally, (laughs) you have to be legally married to be able to get sealed.
0: (laughs) I'm sure the church is like, oh gosh, please stop talking about how Chad and Lori were Mormon. (laughs) Please disassociate. So, once this love affair with Chad starts, Lori started bringing in multiple friends and family members to join their church, the Church of the Firstborn. Alex Cox, her brother, would follow her. Her niece joined, Melanie Poloski.
1: Wait, so is this Chad's church or Lori's church or both their church?
0: Chad's. That's the one
1: that he... Okay.
0: Yeah. Now, remember, Melanie Poloski is the... Lori's sister's daughter. And this is a sister that passed away due to her diabetes years earlier, Stacy Cox. And friends start to follow as well. Melanie Gibb, one of Lori's friends, is a follower of Chad. And Lori starts to become a big part of this little community. She's their goddess now because she's married in the eyes of God in her mind to Chad. Now, after the holiday season in 2018, the new year begins, it's 2019 now, and it's a year literally filled with death, like piled on death, just death after death, surrounding Chad and Lori. And things are getting pretty rocky between Charles and Lori early on in the year. At this point, Lori and Charles had been married for 13 years. On January 31st, 2019, Charles was so worried about his wife, Lori, that he called the police. He was not only worried for her mental health, but he was straight up scared for his safety and the safety of his children. So Charles is outside of their home in Chandler, Arizona, and he can't get a hold of Lori. This is when he calls the police. So the officer walks up to Charles and says, so what's going on tonight? And Charles says, I can't get in touch with my kids. The officer, how old are your kids? And Charles says, six and a half and 16. And the officer says, how long have you been trying? Charles says, two days. She's lost her mind. I don't know how else to say it. We're LDS. She thinks she's a resurrected being and a God and a member of the 144,000. And Jesus is coming next year. She took all the money out of my bank account today. My truck was gone from the airport. She just went to the airport and got it. I just flew in from Dallas. And the officer's like, so where's your truck? And Charles is like, I don't know. That truck over there is a friend of mine. He picked me up. I went to the CSI and took out a report. They ordered a pickup. And the officer says, what time did you do that? And Charles replies, an hour and a half ago. And the officer says, so what makes her a danger to herself and others? And Charles is like, she threatened me to murder me, to kill me. And the officer is like, she threatened to murder you? How did she do that? And Charles says, she said, I'm going to have you destroyed. And the officer's like, okay, that's not a threat to kill you. And Charles is like, yesterday it was a threat to kill me. The officer's like, okay, well, what did she say yesterday? And Charles goes on to say, she said, You're not Charles. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you did with Charles, but I could murder you now with my powers. And the officer says, K. And then Charles says, I'm going to kill you too, is what she said. And the officer says, so she's speaking as a spiritual being. And Charles says, she's not here. She's lost her reality. And then the officer, is this all recent? And Charles tells him, It's been going on for four or five years, but it's gotten really bad lately. She goes to the temple every day and speaks with Moroni and Jesus Christ. They tell her what to do. The last couple days, she says, you're not Charles, you're Nick Schneider. I don't know where she gets these names from. She gets all this stuff from these people in Utah who tell her how many past lives she's had. She's married to Moroni way back then. She's married to James the Just. And then all of a sudden, the officer cuts him off and is like, well, this is all foreign to me. I'm not LDS. And Charles is like, yeah, it's foreign to me, too. It's crazy stuff. And the officer says, I know, but you're using LDS terms here. And Charles is like, I know. It's just like, she's nonsensical. And I haven't seen my, and then there, it's redacted. I'm sure he's talking about his kids. And then it comes back up and he says he's six years old and I want to do this now you've got a pickup order, correct? And the officer says, we do. And Charles says, if she doesn't answer, what do we do? And the officer is like, if she doesn't answer, then we can't enforce the order. So Charles asks, can I break into my house? And the officer asks, do you live here? And Charles is like, yeah, I do. And the officer says, do you guys have any orders of protection against you? And Charles is like, no, we do not. And the officer says, any police reports? And then Charles, no, nothing. And then the officer questions him, so how does she pose a threat to your children? And Charles goes, I don't know what she's going to do with them. I don't know if she's going to flee with them or if she's going to hurt them. And the officer says, so you don't even know if she's here, right? And Charles says, I can't tell because the garage is closed. She locked the garage door and then tries to continue. And the officer goes, hold on, hold on, hold on. What I'm asking you is, do you normally park two vehicles inside the garage? And Charles says, yes, we do. And the officer is like, so it's a possibility that your truck and her car are in there. And Charles says, I don't think she could fit the car and the truck at the same time. She probably put them somewhere else. She said, all your stuff is gone. You're not Charles. Charles's stuff is gone. I don't know what that means. And the officer says, and how long have you been trying to get in touch with the kids? Charles tells him since yesterday. The officer says, like last night or in the morning? And Charles says, Tuesday about 10. And the officer says, why did you leave? asking why he left her a trip. And Charles says, I had a business trip in Houston. Then the officer's like, when did you leave? He says, Tuesday, about 5 a.m. So the officer's like, so you left yesterday morning, flew to Houston, and then flew back today? And Charles says, tonight, she canceled my flight. She came to the airport and took my truck. And the officer's like, well, did she tell you that? And Charles is like, no, she knows the passcode. She knows where it's parked. So the officer asks him, did she go to the airport with you? And Charles is like, no, but she knows. I probably do 45 round trips a year. I have handicapped plates because JJ is handicapped. And the officer says, did you file a stolen vehicle report with Phoenix? And Charles is like, no, because she took it. The officer is like, how do you know? You just suspect that. And Charles is like, yeah, I suspect it. And the officer says without concrete evidence, we can't confirm. And Charles says she has the keys. She knows the door code. And I just want to see that my boy is okay. I have a pickup order. She needs to go and I will take my son. And the officer is like, so do you normally live here? And Charles is like, yes, I live here. All my stuff is in the house. We have a service dog, a beautiful dog. My daughter, she has a room by that front rent window right there. And then the officer goes, so let me ask you this. When you came back, why didn't you just go to the home? And Charles says, because she told me not to come near it, that all my stuff is gone. I'm not stupid. She could have done anything. I thought this was the best way to do it. With what she's going through, I thought it was best. She's psychologically gone. Something has happened to her. And the officer asks how old she is. And Charles tells him 45. And the officer says, so if we talk to her, is she going to be able to have a rational conversation? And Charles is like, yeah, I'm sure she will. And the officer's like, oh, so she'll probably tell me I'm crazy, huh? Is that what you suspect? And Charles says, you're a dark spirit is what she's going to tell you. I'm a dark spirit. Whatever that means, it means you're evil. And the officer says, oh, and you've been saying that this has been going on for four years? And Charles says, well, to an extent, but it's gotten really bad the last several months. I've been trying to ignore it, hoping it will get better. And the officer asks if she's on any medications. And Charles tells him, no, she won't do medication. And then he asks, does she go to the doctor? And Charles says, no, she won't go to the doctor because she's a translated being and they will find out she's translated. She cannot die. And the officer asks, that's what she thinks? And she's been telling you this? And Charles says, yes, and Gabe, too. He's heard this. It's not just me. I love her to death. This is killing me, officer. And the officer says, oh, I understand. And then Charles says, our 13th anniversary is next month. We've had a great marriage. All of the sudden, this last month, it's just blown up and she lost all connection. And the officer says, well, has she made any statements about wanting to hurt the children? And Charles tells him that today she said, come take the kids. I don't care what happens to them. Come take them. And then the officer says, OK, but did she make a direct threat towards them? And then you're saying she said she would murder you through like a spiritual. And Charles says, no, she said, I can murder you. And the, officers, and the officer says, I can murder you. And she's talking in a spiritual way. And Charles says, no, she said I can kill you. She's talking to me physically. I will kill you because you're not Charles and nobody will care. And the officer says, so she at this point doesn't think you are her husband. And Charles is like, no, she thinks I'm Nick Schneider. And the officer is like, who's Nick Schneider? And Charles is like, I have no idea. That's the name she used. I don't know where it came from. This is so far from normal people. I don't know what to do. I need help. She needs help. I got a lot of stuff to do tomorrow. I need to take my son to school. And the officer says, oh, And you just didn't want to go inside because of the statement she made? And Charles says, she took my car and my keys. I have no keys to get in and and I don't have my garage door opener. She knows what she's doing. She took $35,000 out of our bank account. I can't make payroll Friday for my company. She's changed our bank account numbers. I had to change it myself to get back in. All the money is gone. I have seven bucks to my name. And then the officer says, what's your name again? And he goes on to tell this other officer that's coming up about the situation. So then Charles walks the two officers to the home down the road. Once they arrive at the home, Charles tries to get in the garage with the garage code and the garage opens. The cars are all gone and he starts getting nervous. She's gone. I don't know where my kids are. And then he can't get into the garage door into the home. He tells the officers that they have four cars and they're all gone. I don't know where my son is. Charles tells the officer that his two kids, as well as their 19-year-old nephew, Zach, lives with them. He tried to call Zach, but he wouldn't answer. And the officer's like, well, why won't he answer you? And Charles is like, I don't know. She probably told him. I don't know. And then they try to get into the house. And Charles says he'll jump the gate and he'll check the back door And it just goes on. And then the footage ends. And honestly, this footage kind of pissed me off, like, when I was actually watching it. Because, I mean, I know the officer doesn't have hindsight, but, like, he was a straight-up jerk the whole video. And Charles was, like, really... He was super soft spoken. Charles seemed genuinely scared. And I like actually had tears when I was watching the video because I was like, he is pleading for your help. And like, he's doing the best he can to find his kids. He has this gut feeling that something is wrong. And like, I feel like the officer took his chance whenever he could to talk down to Charles and kind of make fun of him. And like, I kind of hope he feels stupid now for this footage because this man literally needed your help. And because he's a man and you think he can take care of himself.
1: I know. That he
0: was just wasting your night. Like, did he seem like a jerk to you, too? Yeah,
1: he did. I was
0: getting pissed. So
1: your wife said that? Did she threaten to kill you?
0: Yeah. And then he's like, oh, that's not a threat to kill you. He's like, no, she's going to kill me.
1: I don't think cops like to get involved in like domestic stuff. Yeah, like, I know Mm -hmm. people call like, oh, my husband, my ex-husband didn't bring my kids back on time. Right. You know, they they literally can't do anything about that. And so like, I can kind of see how he's like, like, "Well, well, what do you want us to do?
0: Yeah, but I feel like if it was like a woman who was like, my husband says he's going to kill me, like they would take it much more seriously. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, they don't always take domestic violence very seriously anyways. And that's obviously why there's such a problem. But I was just like, you're a freaking jerk. Like, you don't believe him because he's a dude and he, like, is scared of his <laughs> wife. And you're like, huh. Like, she literally ends up <laughs> killing him. So... Uh.
1: That's sad. It was like, could he get her on theft for stealing? But I mean, I guess it was their money if it was in their bank account.
0: Oh, I know. And it, it, I mean, honestly, I get even more pissed coming up. So this officer even makes this statement in writing, saying, during my conversation with Charles, I found his demeanor to be strange for a person in his circumstances. He seemed more concerned with asking questions about the legality of financial withdrawals Lori had made than her alleged incoherence. No, it didn't sound like And that. I'm just like, Oh, I wanna punch you. I know, that's what I said. I'm like, Did you even were you even a part of the same conversation? Yeah, and he I just kept watched? saying
1: it like over and over because he talked about the financial thing like once and that he couldn't pay his employees. Yeah, that's gonna be a stress too. But I know he told you his wife is crazy like a million times,
0: and you were not listening to him, you didn't believe him. Ugh. Like, it's like we need to believe people when they say domestic violence, men or women, you know. Like, I hate that they're just like, yeah. And he's like, he talked about the financial. Well, yeah, when someone steals $35,000 from you, you're bound to be asking questions. Yeah. That, about, like, that's a little how do I get this back?
1: If you only have $7 to your name, you just got home. You're <laughs> and you're used gone. to having 35000 <laughs> Your kids are gone. Your wife's saying you're I'm not like, Charles Vallow. You're Nick Schneider. And she's going to murder you.
0: <laughs> oh, this officer pissed me off. I'm like, he is crying for your help. Like, ugh, I feel like they did Charles so wrong all the way up until, like, the story blew up national. Yeah. I'm just like, gosh dang you guys. I, gosh dang you.
1: I wish there was more they could do. But I just think maybe so many I know. people abuse the system. That it's Yeah. Like, it, I mean, that's so Who do so they true. know who to believe, you know? Like,
0: exactly. what if he was
1: saying she was crazy and she wasn't? I don't know.
0: Yeah. I know. I just felt so sad for him, like watching him kind of be embarrassed and like mocked. I was like, okay, you did not need to make him feel that way right before he literally dies from her because she, he, she he was scared him. for a reason. Yeah. It just made me so upset. But Charles's sister, Kay Woodcock, made a statement about the footage saying, quote, it signifies the first domino to fall, leading a path of catastrophic damage, which nobody could have ever imagined. Charles reached out for help to no avail. He prayed Lori would regain her good judgment. She has always known right from wrong, end quote. Now, through this time, Chad is telling Lori that Charles is blocking her from her spiritual gifts. She couldn't complete her mission with Charles around. And with that, the couple claimed Lori's husband was now a zombie. So the Hidden Podcast hosts, they're a married couple. One is a psychologist and one's a journalist. And they say that Chad was Googling Ned Schneider six months before Charles would ultimately die. Dr. John Mathias is the psychologist and forensic interviewer, while his wife, Lauren, is the journalist. They go on to say that police didn't take Charles seriously. They just looked at him like he was a pretty big guy he could handle himself. And that was evident to me. I don't believe that Charles got the children that night, regardless of his pickup order, but I do know that police talked to Lori after this incident. She comes to the police station with her daughter, Tylee, and they are both brought into the interrogation room. She's saying that she needs to file a report. This is the next day, the day after Charles calls the police and had that conversation I just told you. And Lori comes in and she's like, I was arguing with my husband on the phone. He was working in Texas. And I found out all this stuff about what he was doing and who he was doing it with, insinuating he was cheating on her when really it was the other way around. And she says, so I took the kids to spend the night in a hotel because I just knew he was coming home. And this morning when I took my son to school, I went into the school and Charles was waiting somewhere and he stole my whole purse out of my car, like everything, my phone and my wallet. And Lori goes on to say how she locked her car door, but the sunroof was open for their service dog and he was in the car. She laughs and then she's like, I left the door unlocked for the first time ever, but I don't know if it was locked or not. Maybe he just reached through the sunroof and got it. And Lori is literally contradicting herself over and over again. And then she claims that with her phone, he was texting all her friends and family. Charles was impersonating her and luring her friends over to the house to meet him. And he kicked in the door last night to get in the house. And then it shows her friend in the interrogation room as well. She's backing Lori's story. And I'm assuming that this friend is Melanie Gibb, but I don't really know. And she's a problematic character later in the story. She's a follower of Chad's who later kind of changes her tune. But after a bit more questioning, the officers leave the room and they decide to make a phone call. They call Charles and when Charles answers, the officer is like, hey, so I'm calling because your wife is here claiming you stole her purse and her cell phone. And I can't hear what Charles is saying, but then the officer goes, okay, well, you realize they don't belong to you, correct? And then Charles must go on to explain that she stole $35,000 from him and the officer says, okay, well, you realize that's a civil issue. And then the officer's like, and you also texted her friend pretending to be her to meet you at your house. What was that for? And Charles seems to ask something along the lines of if they had his report from last night and the officer says, yes, but he doesn't have it in front of him. And then Charles must ask about this order to pick up and about getting help for Lori. And the officer is like, no, I can't do anything about that right now. It has to go through our sergeant and then get approved and then we would get dispatched and that's how the process works. And I can't keep someone against their will without a warrant. We have a process. And the officer is literally ignoring Charles and all his very valid concerns and he keeps cutting him off and he's like... Hey, listen, listen, I'm discussing a whole separate issue with you with you right now. I'm talking about getting her belongings back. And it's like, okay, why is no one helping Charles with getting his kid back that he literally has an order for to pick up? But oh, no, poor Lori. She must have her cell phone.
1: It's because Lori is a good looking woman and she's very manipulative
0: exactly you
1: know she's lying to the cops and the cops just fall for it
0: exactly oh it's so frustrating so charles tells the officer that the purse is at their home and the officer is like well you changed the locks and she can't get in so unless you want to be charged with theft then you need to get the purse back to her you can come here with the purse and that order and we can figure it out how soon can you be here I'm like R- okay, so you'll charge him with theft but not her for the $35,000. He's probably like
1: I can't get there cuz I have no truck.
0: <laughs> Where is my truck?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so and I can't pay for anything. I can't get an Uber cuz I have
0: $7. Literally. And then when the officers go back into the interview room, they tell Lori that Charles has committal paperwork for her, and with that, they can hold her for however long they deem necessary, just based off what your husband says. And she starts laughing. She's like, (laughs) sorry, I just think it's funny. And then Tylee jumps in defending her mom, which also breaks my heart because Lori turns on that poor girl as well and Lori's like oh yeah because i'm really the one that did something wrong and the officer says well i don't know i'm not going to take sides but just talking to you i don't see you being a danger to yourself or anyone else you've got your kid to school i don't know i'm like literally i hope you feel dumb
1: oh i wonder if that police department got sued over
0: yeah, maybe like, like anything, from
1: like miss missing it, not taking action, not doing anything. Yeah, I
0: haven't heard about that. So but it's like, dude, you are picking sides. He's like, I don't wanna pick sides or anything. It's like you're staring at the pretty blonde lady flirting with you from across the table and you're like, ha ha, yeah, this is so funny. You seem totally fine. <laughs> it's like that's taken aside. And I should just not watch these things because it got me so mad. And I know the officers don't have the foresight into how dangerous she is. I mean, who can ever expect that? I know that. And, you know, I'm sitting there being annoyed from like a, like I have the hindsight, but Charles is just so freaking wronged here. I can't handle it.
1: Yeah, it's too bad. That cost him his
0: life. It's really sad. The officer then goes on to say that If she's still here when it's approved, she'll be taken to Community Bridges. This is where Charles was trying to send her to get her mental help. And Lori is dumbfounded. Like, how did he even get that in the middle of the night? And the officer says that family members can get it done whenever they need. And she goes on to say, so they'll be looking for me. And then the officers literally give her advice on how not to be taken in for this committal. They're like, well, Lori, we will knock. So if you see the officers knocking, just talk to them through the door. Like, just don't open it. But if you want a free medical evaluation, you can go. And she's like, ha ha ha. Well, I haven't gotten any sleep in like three days. So, and the officers start laughing, you know, because it's so funny that she's threatening to murder people. <laughs>
1: Did they not read the report? Like, I'd be a little suspicious of somebody. that. I mean, she just sounds psychotic.
0: Literally. Literally. And then Lori looks at Tylee and jokingly says, are you going to be okay without your mama? And Tylee replies, you're going to get a padded room. And it's like, hmm. The officers, like, quickly jump in and change the subject. But it's like, did no one notice that? Because it's like, why would... Why would that be Tylee's response if she doesn't know her mom's a little crazy? Like, you're going to get a padded room if you go. Yeah. (laughs) And then the officers go on to say that they don't kick down doors. They're civil orders. So if there is no door separating them, then they can take her. But if they're separated by the door, they can't just come in and get her. And she's like, so people can just make stuff up about you and get this. And the officers are like, well, if it's a family member, it depends on the circumstances. And Tylee then asks the officers, well, do you know what he said? And Lori replies really fast. And she's like, no, no. And then Lori goes on to say that he's trying to lock her out of her house. The the officers tell her she's allowed access to her home as well. And then she's like, he has access to my whole phone right now, all my contacts. He's calling everyone, telling them I'm crazy. And the officers ask, oh, has he done this before? And Tylee jumps in and she's like, no, no, this was all just in the last 24 hours. And then Lori is like, no. And Tylee literally looks over at her mom and goes, oh, yeah, no. I mean, he's done it before, but this whole situation was in the last 24 hours. And like right there, I could see that Tylee was lying for her mom. And Lori's like, yeah, he has done this before, not as extreme, but he's been ballistic to where we've had to leave. And Tylee's like, yeah, I've like seen that three or four times that I can remember. And Lori's like, yeah, in thirteen years, I'm like, okay, you're not really making a great case for yourself, but whatever. And then Tylee says jokingly, "He's a really stand-up guy overall." And the officer literally laughs and is like, hey, I'm not making any judgments. It's like, okay, yes, you are. And you're making the wrong judgments. And those judgments should be on that crazy lady sitting in front of your face. I just cannot handle the videos. But after this whole mess of a situation, Charles files for divorce in February of 2019. It's just a couple weeks later. And when he files, he reports that he is afraid for not only his own safety, but the safety of his children. Once Charles files for divorce, Lori just leaves with Tylee. She leaves JJ back with Charles and she flies to Kauai, Hawaii, and shows up on her friend April's doorstep. We talked a little about April last episode. Once she arrives, she tells April that she's getting divorced from Charles because he's cheating on her and he's turned into a dark spirit and... April starts to get a little creeped out as the conversation goes on as Lori starts showing her pages of people who are light and dark pages of people who should be saved she's like April I am supposed to gather the 144,000 that will be saved and you're on my list. I need to save you and you have to come to Rexburg with me, but here's the catch. You actually have to leave your kids and your husband behind, but listen, it's okay because the world is ending soon, so it doesn't matter. And remember, April met Lori at church, an LDS church. So while she's staring Lori in the face while Lori's just spewing these insane claims, April's getting freaked out. Like, this isn't Lori. This isn't normal. This has nothing to do with the church. So, April kindly declines Lori's offer to leave her children and come be saved. But before Lori goes, she needs April to know something. That the most evil spirit, well, it's Oprah. And April is basically like, okay, bye-bye. Never see you again. (laughs) And during all this time, Lori's other brother is becoming increasingly concerned, Adam Cox. This is the brother who wrote that book about the woman who died on his radio show contest. We talked about that in part one. Well, Adam says that Lori's religious beliefs were becoming scary. Quote, she talks to Jesus in the temple. She has a higher priesthood than the rest of us. Just some things that were alarming to me. And she goes, you think I'm crazy, don't you? And I go, I don't know if you're crazy, but none of that makes sense to me. End quote. And after a couple of months, Lori decides to just go home from Hawaii. I'm not sure what her intentions were, but when she walks into the door of her and Charles's home, he just starts crying. He forgives her. He literally loves her so much, and he was just happy to have her home. Charles and Adam now actually start to plan an intervention for Lori. They needed to help her. How could they get through to her? But Lori's affair with Chad was not over. According to Dateline, Lori is in Arizona with her husband and Chad is in Idaho with Tammy. And Chad would text her things like, I'm heading to bed so that I can come snuggle tightly against you. I adore you. You are truly my best friend on earth and throughout eternity. And no, Chad was not being cutesy like, oh, I'm going to go to bed and snuggle you in my dreams. Nope. Chad was going into his closet where he claimed there was a portal and that through that portal, he could pass through into the spirit world and truly be there with Lori in Arizona. Even though he was really probably laying in bed next to his wife, texting Lori under the covers. (laughs) And then one day, Charles discovers the affair. Of course, he knew there was a lot of strange things going on in the last six months, but here it was. She was cheating on him. It felt like he was stabbed with a knife straight to his back. And so he starts digging. At this point, Lori had gone online and looked at wedding rings for her and Chad. She was texting and emailing Chad constantly, and Charles digs just deep enough to discover Chad's wife's name, Tammy Daybell. And after he asks Lori what is going on, he can see that this is something very serious, that this has something to do with her downward spiral the last few months. And he doesn't hesitate to get in touch with Tammy to break the heart-wrenching news to her that their spouses were having a torrid love affair. Tammy, I'm sure, is devastated. This is her husband of almost 30 years. They have shared five children. They have memories. They have grandchildren. And with a broken heart, she confronts Chad. What's going on? Why is this woman's husband calling me, saying that you're having an affair with his wife? And Chad plays it off, of course. No, no, he's crazy. She's part of our following, a fan of our books. He's jealous. I'm not sleeping with her. But now Chad is mad. He's fuming. The audacity that Charles has to reach out to his wife. So he calls up Lori and he's like, hey, so I have bad news. That husband of yours that you're cheating on with me, Yeah, he's actually conspiring at this moment with your brother, Adam, to kill you. He wants you dead, and it's because he wants your insurance money. And that was it. Lori was set off. She would not stand for this, and in this moment, she decides she has to kill Charles. So Lori gets in touch with her brother, Alex. Many people, when referring to this story, actually refer to Alex as the angel of death. Jill Kimmel appears on Dateline, the Doomsday Files, and says that Lori had this hold over Alex, explaining him as being Lori's yes man. I'm in, I'm yours, I'm, I'll do whatever you need. Charles had told his family that if anything happens to him, it was Lori and her brother Alex. He was truly terrified of them. She texts Alex. Thank you for standing by me. It's all coming to a head this week. And Alex knew what she was talking about, that they were going to get rid of Charles. They had already texted about this. Within the last few weeks, leading up to July 11th, Alex had texted her, Have fun and get rid of Ned already. Which, remember, they're calling him Ned Schneider. Charles thought she was calling him Nick Schneider. You know, so... And with all of this, Alex knew it was his time to shine, so he packs himself a bag. Remember, he lives in Phoenix as well, but he doesn't live in Lori's home. So he packs a bag, puts some clothes in it, and makes sure to pack a gun. Oh, you know, just in case. Once Charles had found out about the affair, the couple separated for good and Charles moved out. It was his last straw. So on the morning of July 11th, Charles was headed to Lori's home to pick up their son, JJ, and take him to school. He loved JJ. He would do anything to be there for him. And spending the mornings with him just lit up Charles's day. But as Charles drives in, nearing the home, he notices something. Is that Alex's truck parked in the driveway? Why would he be here so early? So Charles pulls out his phone and he texts Lori's brother, Adam quote, Alex is here. And this stops Adam in his tracks. It's not right. It's weird. What reason would Alex have to be there? So he replies to Charles saying, quote, be on the lookout. They could be up to something. And then Charles sends his last text and he's replying to Adam. Quote, absolutely. With this, Charles hops out of his truck at 7:35 a.m. and he walks inside to get JJ. We don't know what happens inside, we will probably never know the true story. But we will hear later on what Lori and Alex claim to have happened. What we do know is that Alex pulls out the gun he brought and he shoots Charles once. When Charles falls back and onto the ground, laying there dying, Alex walks up and shoots him one more final time standing above him. At this point, Tylee and JJ were already waiting in Lori's car parked in the garage. And Lori glances over to her dying husband laying there on the floor in his own blood and she walks out the door. She hops in her car and she says, we're taking JJ to school. And with that, she drives away. She goes to Burger King and is like, all right, kids, let's get some breakfast before school. They're seen on CCTV footage going through the drive-thru. And then she takes JJ to school, drops him off, and then proceeds home with Tylee. During this time, Alex stays at the home with Charles. And once he calls the police, he says, the shooting just happened minutes ago. It's self-defense. But it's actually proved through text messages that after Charles, who was 62 at the time, was shot, Alex waits 43 minutes until he finally calls officers to the scene. And we're going to get into all of that during part four, the true final episode on this case. Once Charles's murder happens, things do spiral fast. One thing happens right after another. So I will talk to you guys soon with all the details about Charles' murder and the destruction that follows. If you enjoyed our show today, please share this story with your friends and onto your social media. If you have any case suggestions or stories of your own, your stories, things, creepy things that have happened to you, crazy stories, crimes that you know about, email them to us at truecrimeexposed at gmail.com. If you email us your stories, you can either remain anonymous or leave your name for a shout out. Follow us on social media for pictures and information on each case we cover. You can find us on Instagram at truecrimexpod and on TikTok at true crime exposed Podcast. This podcast is written, hosted, researched, and edited by me, Kayla Waters. It's co-hosted by my mom, Alicia Jenkins. Our palate cleanser is given to us by my daughter, Charlie Waters. Our original graphic art was done by Arthur Max, and our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at InPajamasMusic.